Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. U.S. Senator Gary Peters is going to kick off the show for us today. He's going to talk about life in Washington after the midterms and the issues that lawmakers face now, including the extreme partisanship, the fight over the debt ceiling, and some local issues that he is working on. Then Abdul El-Sayed will join the program. He's the new Wayne County Health Director, and we'll talk about some statistics that really highlight the county's health outcome challenges. That's next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. So it's no surprise that we're a really polarized nation and that when that polarization expands into politics, less gets done in Lansing and in Washington, all over the country, in fact. And that's particularly true when neither of the political parties has enough of a majority to actually pass legislation. And that's where we find ourselves right now at the federal level. Neither Democrats nor Republicans can get much done in Washington because the two parties disagree on so much and the chambers are now divided. After the midterm elections, Republicans now run the House of Representatives and Democrats still run the Senate. But what does that mean for those who go to work every day in Washington trying to represent us here in Michigan? What are our senators and Congress members up to now that there's less momentum behind President Biden's agenda, which really had uh, quite a bit going in the first two years of his presidency? A little later in the hour, we are going to talk about why Wayne County's residents have really, really poor health outcomes and how that fact is connected to the area's poverty. Uh, Wayne County Health Director Dr. Abdul El-Sayed is going to join us to talk about that. But before we get there, we want to talk about what Democratic Senator Gary Peters has been up to while serving in a divided Congress. What kind of things are he is he working on to get passed? And what kind of funding has he been able to appropriate for the state of Michigan? It's really great, uh, Gary, to have you back here with us on Detroit Today. Welcome to the show. Steve, always uh, always a pleasure to be with you. Hope all is well. Yes, yeah, uh, I hope what's uh, well with you too. So you're not uh, a stranger to the idea of divided government. I feel like most of the time you've been in Washington, that's been uh, the case. Uh, but Congress does look really different this term uh, than it did uh, in the last because of the election. So uh, tell me about uh, what that looks like and wh- what the agenda can look like now because it's a little harder to get things that uh, both parties are going to agree on. 
Well, uh, there's no question uh, things are, are different uh, now in this session than they were uh, last session. You know, last uh, the two years, uh, we had a majority in the House, a Democratic majority in the House and, and, in, the, and in the Senate, although it was as narrow as it could be in the Senate at 50-50. And the reason we had the uh, majority was that the vice president cast the tie-breaking vote. So it was uh, very narrow, uh, including just a few seats in the House. But uh, the, the legislative accomplishments uh, were significant uh, over those uh, two years, from infrastructure to chips uh, to, uh, to dealing with uh, first meaningful legislation on gun safety. So uh, a lot was uh, done during that time. It's going to be more complicated now with the Republicans uh, in the majority in the House, as you mentioned in the opening. Uh, and I think it's even more complicated because there is a, a good number of uh, very, very conservative members of the Republican Party uh, that have been elected uh, and have been controlling a lot of what's happening uh, over in the House. But, you know, I'm still uh, I'm still hopeful that we'll get things uh, done. Uh, I always work in a, in a bipartisan way. And uh, and even when I was in the in the minority, I had more of my bills passed than any senator in the Senate, whether a Democrat or Republican. And. Uh, that uh, has not happened for over 50 years that a minority member actually was able to do that. So, so I'm certainly hopeful that we'll be able to, to get meaningful things done. And in fact, uh, today uh, we're debating a bill that I authored uh, to provide grants for firefighters uh, and uh, emergency personnel in, uh, in firefighting stations. Mm -hmm. I, uh, gonna, it's bipartisan. Uh, we're debating some amendments later today. Uh, we're hoping to get it passed uh, tomorrow and then uh, off to the house uh, to uh, to get passed and then to the president's desk and so uh, we are we are working to get things done and certainly these firefighting grants are incredibly important for so many yeah. uh, of our departments across the state. Yeah, I want to come back and talk specifically about that uh, Fire Grants and Safety Act. But before we, we, we get there, I, I do want to get your reaction to the Republican House plan to uh, to raise the debt ceiling. Uh, they, they, they say that, look, they, they might be willing to do it for a year if certain other requirements uh, are met. There's a lot of stuff that they're asking for. What What's your reaction to it? Well, well, first off, uh, just put, just kicking the can down the uh, down the street for a year is uh, unacceptable. Uh, the the fact that you have a a uh, a potential default of uh, that's what we're talking about a potential default on bonds from the United States uh, is uh, unacceptable. Uh, the financial markets uh, want to have certainty. They want to know that the, the United States government actually pays its bills and it doesn't uh, default. And to use default uh, as a as a leverage. Is incredibly dangerous. Incredibly dangerous uh, for the economy. If there's a default, you'll see uh, uh, costs will go up. Uh, retirement accounts will be hit uh, dramatically. This will hurt people all across the, the country. Uh, default should not be a, a negotiating chip. Uh, we should uh, make sure that we have a long runway so that people don't have to worry about that. But then certainly we have to look at how we we spend money wisely. Uh, looking at uh, reducing the deficit. Uh, we have uh, put forward a plan. President Biden put forward a very, very comprehensive budget for what he wants to see happen uh, uh, over the next year or two. Uh, we need to see that from the Republicans. They have not put any kind of comprehensive plan. And if you're going to negotiate, you need to know what both sides want. And then you try to find common ground and sort out differences. But put on the table what you're actually proposing. We're not seeing that from the Republicans. Uh, some of what they're talking about, though, is is about you know spending and things that they would they would pull back or claw back. One of them is unspent COVID funds, which I, I, I don't know. I don't know if that seems you know uh, you know uh, like 
an agreeable point to, to to sort of start with. But but is there anything that you saw in the in in their plan that seemed like uh, I guess a rallying point for for negotiation about how to get this done? I think we I I'm still we're still reviewing exactly what they have in there. They don't have a whole lot in there. Yeah. Uh, there's going to be more that they're going to want. So I, my my view is at this point. Before you start uh, negotiating, is uh, put on the table everything you want to do, and and then you know certainly we've put everything on the table. Uh, have them do the same thing, and let's uh, let's then figure out uh, the direction that this country should go, and and see where where people are on both sides. That's yeah. not happening right now. It's frustrating, uh, uh, and so then do you have offer? Will it just kick the can down the road for a year? That's not acceptable, and certainly uh, that's not the way to run. Uh, run a business or a government. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with U.S. Senator Kerry Peters. He's a Democrat from right here in Michigan. We're talking about the new Congress in Washington after the midterm elections, split government again. Republicans control the House of Representatives. Uh, Democrats have that narrow majority uh, in the Senate because uh, the vice president is the president of the Senate and gets to cast uh, a vote if there's a tie. There are 50 uh, senators from each party. Uh, We're talking about uh, what can get done in the next two years uh, with that divided uh, state of government. Uh, we'd love to hear from you during the call, the conversation as well. Give us a call and let us know if you have questions for Senator Peters about uh, his policy and political priorities. Do you wonder what can get accomplished in a divided uh, Congress? And uh, what do you think about the debt ceiling negotiations, which are going to heat up uh, early this summer? Uh, between the two parties and the White House uh, uh, about whether to pay the debts that we've already accumulated uh, here in the United States. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll include you in the conversation. Uh, Gary, I want to talk a little more about this Fire Grants and Safety Act. Uh, You're uh, one of the sponsors of that. You say it's got bipartisan support. Talk about what it would do. Well, it basically extends uh, fire grants that are currently available uh, for fire departments, uh, but uh, that uh, authorization ends this year. These are grants that are used by departments all across the Detroit area, all across uh, Michigan, uh, to supplement uh, the equipment needs of, of uh, fire uh, uh, for, for firefighters, uh, as well as hire firefighters. And one thing about firefighting equipment, it is incredibly expensive, uh, and uh, but it uh, is necessary for firefighters to to fight fires safely uh, for EMS folks uh, to protect uh, their citizens. Uh, and these grants uh, help provide resources, particularly to smaller fire departments. And, you know, just an example as I've traveled around, things like Jaws of Life, which are a tool to make sure you can get somebody out of a car after a car crash and it crumples and they can be trapped, a very dangerous situation. But that piece of equipment can cost sixty, seventy thousand dollars mm-hmm. $70,000. If you're a very large fire department, you can probably find places in your budget for that because it's important. But if you're a a small fire department, that's usually not something that you can afford. Uh, And these federal grants allow you to do that because even in small communities, people get in car accidents and people need life-saving equipment to help them. And this is a way to to help those uh, communities that may not have the resources to have some of the critical equipment necessary. Yeah, uh, I, I, I want to get to a couple of calls, and then I know you're you're going to have to run. But I also wonder what you make of the debate about 
uh, gun legislation in in Washington. Uh, President Biden is urging members of Congress to ban assault weapons again. Uh, I know you're uh, uh, someone who has uh, kind of a moderate stance on on gun legislation. You're uh, uh, someone who respects the Second Amendment but believes we can do more. Uh, what do you think about banning assault weapons or doing some other things at the federal level? Well, I support that. I, I've uh, supported, but you're right. I, I, I believe in the Second Amendment. I'm a gun owner myself and, uh, and enjoy hunting. But there are common sense things that we can do and we must do, uh, particularly after the uh, the just ongoing tragic shootings uh, that we're seeing, uh, mass shootings, but just the fact that every day in America, nearly 100 people die of gun violence every single day. Unfortunately, today, that will be probably around 100 people. Tomorrow, again, and again the next day. It's simply uh, unacceptable. So uh, I'm, I am uh, working hard to try to, to uh, get those laws changed. It's difficult, and you talked about the, the change in the legislature, having Republicans in control of the House probably makes it uh, next to impossible to think we can have common sense uh, gun safety legislation. When I say common sense, just closing loopholes uh, that exist uh, in background checks. Uh, a large majority of weapons today are sold uh, through these loopholes without any kind of background checks. We know by closing those loopholes, lives uh, will be saved. We also know that 90% of the American people believe that those uh, loopholes should be closed. And, and uh, interestingly enough, we also know about 70% of NRA members think that that's common sense and mm -hmm. should be done. And yet I can't get Republican uh, lawmakers uh, to vote on something as common sense as that. Uh, people uh, need to remember that come election time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to take uh, one quick call before we have to let you go, Senator. Uh, Sam in Detroit, go ahead. How you doing, man? And uh, Senator, good morning. Uh, thank you for your efforts serving the people from Michigan especially. Uh, I wanted to see what is your uh, position about the plan that's supposed to take place about replacing the Michigan work staff to the uh, unemployment agency, insurance agency, to take over the services provided to Michiganders through the American Job Centers, and how far you are siding with the negative impact of these changes. Hmm. Uh, Sam, really great question. I'm glad you called. Uh, Gary, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I didn't quite understand the question. You can help me, uh, Steve. I, I think he's asking about changes to the unemployment insurance agency here in Michigan and, and probably referring to some of the problems that we had with uh, w with uh, those disbursements in, in recent years. I think there are some, some workforce changes that are that are taking place there. Well, you know, I'd have to, to look at that. I mean, the unemployment system is run by the state of Michigan, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that would be something that is done at the state level. Certainly, we have to make sure that in any payments that are made are being made uh, accurately and uh, and deal with fraud. There was a lot of fraud in the unemployment system, particularly during the pandemic, when a lot of folks were applying for it. Uh, the systems uh, were were quite frankly just were not designed for the number of people that suddenly found themselves unemployed during the pandemic. So there were uh, all of the computer systems and which were fairly archaic were uh, overwhelmed. And as a result of that, the uh, disbursements were made that should not have been made. Mm -hmm. We have provided resources uh, to states to try to upgrade their computer systems uh, and the way that they can track that, which is gonna be uh, important. 
uh, for us uh, for us to do uh, to make sure that only those who are entitled to unemployment insurance actually receive that money. Yeah. yeah. A quick question before I let you go. Hunter in Detroit wants to know if you support getting rid of the debt ceiling statute as a solution to this constant uh, wrangling over it. Yeah, I you know when you think about it, we're I think we're the only uh, government, with the exception of uh, there's one somewhere out there that also has a uh, debt limit ceiling. Uh, it, we we're the where it's unusual for any government to do that because our government say if we spend money, then you can count on us to actually pay. Mm-hmm. We will not default on our debt. And the fact that we actually have to have a vote to determine whether or not we default on debt that we have already occurred uh, is uh, is really unusual, and it creates these kinds of uh, uh, situations uh, where are really potentially damaging to the economy, and it's they're basically self-inflicted wounds. In my mind, you should never are you should never debate whether or not we're going to pay the bills that we have already spent. It would be like a like a, a you know in your household, uh, you go out and you spend some money, and the bill comes to you in the mailbox, and you say, you know, I'm not going to pay that. I'm going to default. Yeah. We don't expect we don't uh, let individuals do that. We should definitely not let uh, the United States government do that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, uh, Gary Peters, a Democratic senator. From here in Michigan. Always great to catch up with you. Thanks so much for coming by today. We will see you soon, I hope, uh, here on Detroit Today. Sounds great, Steve. You have a wonderful day. You too. Okay, uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little more about politics, but shift over to Wayne County. Talk about why so many of us who are living here have such poor health outcomes. Abdul Al-Sayed, who is the new Wayne County health director, will join us. Uh, We'll also want to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019. And you can go to Twitter and hashtag us. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. Health is one of the things that it's really hard to measure through statistics. Many people think of health in terms of physical well-being. That includes things like getting enough sleep, nutrition, water, and exercise. But, of course, health is also more expansive than that. It includes social well-being and mental health and feeling like you belong in some ways to a larger purpose. The University of Wisconsin Population Health Institute recently published a report on civic health, and it really caught my attention. The report claims that civic health is determined in part by a county's civic infrastructure, which includes places for people to meet, have their voices heard, engage in cultural activities, enjoy nature, and feel a sense of belonging. Being in good civic health means having access to things like broadband internet, living close to a park or recreation facility, and maintaining low levels 
of racial segregation. That same report found that here in Wayne County, we have really poor civic health. So to talk about that health outcome and the relatively poor overall health outcomes that so many of us here in Wayne County struggle with, uh, we have someone here who has a lot of ideas about that with us. Uh, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed is the health director for Wayne County. He, of course, also used to be the health director here in the city of Detroit, and he was a gubernatorial candidate in 2018. Abdul, welcome back to Detroit Today. Stephen, it's always a privilege to join you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So before we get into specifics on resident health, uh, I just want to talk a little about the job. You have been uh, on that job now for just a little bit. Uh, talk about the things that you're learning and the things that you're seeing uh, from, uh, I guess, a, bi- a bit of the lens pulled back, right? Uh, you used to be the health director in Detroit. Wayne County is a bigger jurisdiction. Uh, what are some of the things that, that strike you as different or maybe even the same as uh, what you saw when you were here in the city? Yeah, Stephen. In my past experience, I was the health director for one city, albeit the biggest city in Wayne County. I'm now uh, the health director for 42 uh, communities. And I presume a topic that we are going to talk quite a bit about today is inequities. And Across Wayne County, you have a pretty dramatic difference in terms of access to the basic resources that can improve someone's health between a place like Northville, uh, which is one of the richest communities in the entire state, versus a place like Highland Park, which is teetering on the verge of bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. And to understand a lot of the conversation we're going to have today, it's really important to put yourself in the shoes of someone who lives in Northville versus in the shoes of someone who lives in Highland Park. I mean, that, that, uh, the, the disparity there is one of the things that I think uh, we talk a lot about on, on, uh, on this show and that we think about a lot in this city. And when you invoke those two communities, that's probably maybe one of the widest disparities that, that exist. Talk about why in 2023, uh, given all of the things that we have gone through as a nation, all of the things that we've learned, why does that persist? I mean, it may seem like a kind of naive question, but um, it, it seems like that we should be narrowing those gaps and that we're not. Am I right about that? That's absolutely right. And This is in part a story of the 20th century in this country. It is, when you look at um, how populations came to Michigan, uh, there was so much migration, mainly from the South, uh, of black folk, but then also migration into this country from uh, all kinds of of places in the world, like my own father did. And um, when you look at uh, the folks who located into a place like Northville, they tended to come... Uh, with higher degrees, with the opportunity to slot directly into professional class jobs. Uh, Whereas you look at Highland Park, and um, after uh, the 1960s, what was left over because of racial residential segregation uh, tended to be uh, black folk who had come here during the Great Migration who were slotted into uh, the the, the lowest paying jobs, and even in those jobs, uh, kept without access to, to, to moving up. And so this is the consequence of generations of failed uh, 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 economic mobility. And 
we know that one of the most important predictors of uh, health is income. And then it's not just income, but it's also wealth. So even if you've escaped poverty in one generation, uh, what you grew up in is still going to have consequences for uh, all of that path dependency uh, in terms of uh, how your body uh, came to and your mind came to the current point that they sit at their health. And so addressing these inequities in 2023 has to be a primary goal. And if we're serious about taking on that top line measure of life expectancy, we have to be serious about correcting that huge chasm. Because unless we lift the floor, right, then we're not we're not really going to be able to achieve uh, the height of the ceiling. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you mentioned it, but I want to drill down on it just a little. Race has an awful lot to do with these disparities still, uh, e- even though uh, from a legal perspective, uh, there isn't there isn't the kind of discrimination that used to exist uh, in this country. It still is a driver of this kind of uh, inequality. Um, talk about why that's true still in places like Wayne County. You know, uh, it's not race, it's racism. Yes. Um, if you're the only one without an umbrella in the rain, then you're the one who's going to get wet. And oftentimes in health metrics, you know, I trained as an epidemiologist, Stephen, and uh, for a long time I was, I was trained to use race as a proxy uh, to understand the pernicious effects of you name the disease. But it's not really the race issue, right? Be- because you're black or because I'm uh, Middle Eastern, North African, that doesn't really change uh, our, our organ systems. I can tell you, uh, as someone who's gone to medical school, we, we look the same on the inside. We really, really do. The issue, though, is is that race is a proxy for being exposed to this thing out in the ether, which is racism. And the way that racism applies itself is that it's like a residue. It, once it's been pushed out, it stays there for a while. It shapes uh, the dynamics of institutions. It shapes the dynamics of structures. Uh, it changes uh, who gets promoted, who doesn't get promoted, who gets access to a high-quality school. Uh, and all of that goes back to a set of decisions that we often make that implant it into the most important decisions we make as a society. So you think about the way that we fund public schools, for example, we fund them based on property tax. And property tax value is a function of the value of property. And so if we've had racial residential segregation and redlining in the past, what we're doing is porting that past into our future by saying we are going to withhold funding from some schools and not others. So you look at a Northville Public Schools, which is one of the best performing and highest funded public school districts in the entire uh, state, I would say in the entire country, and compare it to schools at DPSCD or Highland Park uh, or Inkster. And the difference there isn't as much that you don't have super bright minds at both of these schools. The difference is that the soil in which these bright minds uh, are growing up is fundamentally different because we've systematically disinvested in these other schools because they just don't have the same property tax values. And when we make that policy decision, what we're doing is we're carrying the the, the racism of the past into the future. And the thing I want folks to understand is that racism is less about what one individual says to another. Because people will hear what I'm saying here and say, well, I'm not racist. And I send my kid to Northfield Public School and I'm not saying you are. I'm saying that we have not fixed the ways that racism has instantiated our se- itself into the policy choices that we make to address the, the, the long-term uh, outcomes and the disparities in those outcomes. And so, so much of what we're going to talk about when it comes to life expectancy, especially right now, has to do with the well-being of young people. Yeah. And yeah. unless we're serious about investing in our young people the same way, then we should not be surprised when the consequences of racist, racist structures in the past then continue to pattern access 
to the basic means of a dignified life for kids in the future. Yeah. And the way that all of those inequalities end up affecting health outcomes is very vivid. But even beyond that, the the, the fact that somebody suffers uh, diminished health outcomes in their lifetime uh, adds to the intergenerational uh, effect of this kind of racism. So my father, for instance, is if my father is is someone who can't get access to proper uh, health care, uh, is is poor because he doesn't have the same opportunities as someone else. That means that my outcomes, my uh, my potential is uh, is curtailed because of that, and that's why we see this repeat itself over and over and over again. It is absolutely cyclical, and it's really hard, I think, for for uh, for a lot of people to really understand that that is what we're, we're what we're battling. That's absolutely right. I, I want to offer you just a, an anecdote to to help shape this. I, I got a friend of mine, a uh, young black man. He has a fantastic job in great healthcare, and I was talking about the experience of going to a doctor and he said, I don't go to the doctor. I said, why not? He said, listen, this is the first time in my life I've had stable access to insurance. And growing up, my parents were between Medicaid and no insurance at all. And so I was taught that if you go to the doctor, the doctor sees you as a second class citizen because the reimbursements for Medicaid are way lower. And that's a choice that we've made <clears throat> in our healthcare system to rob folks of a basic access to, to healthcare. And the way that patterns is that that kid <clears throat> has escaped the poverty of his youth. And at the same time, the lessons he learned because of the lessons our system taught about how you will be treated as someone who codes as a Medicaid patient, as a poor black kid in uh, a, a low-income urban environment, that that's going to port itself into the future. So when we were talking about, and this came up in the conversation about, I'm, I'm reaching the age, Stephen, where I'm starting to have to think about uh, colonoscopy. <laughs> and, you know, I was telling him as a good doctor should, that this is something you really should be thinking about. You need to do it. Uh, there are high rates of, of colon cancer in our communities. And he said, yeah, I'm not doing that. And you can imagine if, if this is a, a person in whose body a polyp is going to start growing into a cancer, the probability that it gets caught as a function of the way that our system treats poverty is going to be lower. Yeah. And <clears throat> that's the thing that we have to take on. And so a lot of this is, is about structure and the way that structure reports. You look at that transition of life, the probability of infant mortality or maternal mortality, right at that moment when a new baby is being born, infant mortality among black babies is one to two times as high. Maternal mortality is three to four times as high in black babies and moms. And you think about why, and it all goes back to a set of choices we as a society make about who gets access and who doesn't get access uh, to health systems uh, and not just access to the ability to walk in, but knowing you're not going to be hounded by a biller on the back end, knowing you're going to be treated with dignity and respect by your doctor. They're not going to blame you for your circumstances. I mean, I think about the fact that my uh, wife, Sarah, we just had a baby, three month old, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, in one of the first visits, I was tied up with work. And the question that they asked Sarah wasn't, is dad involved? The question is, tell us about dad with the assumption right, that, that I was in the picture. And I talked to a lot of my uh, black colleagues and friends about their experience. And the question that is asked is, is dad involved? And the amount of racism and, and stereotyping that is packed into that one question. That's right. 
right? As you are going in this vulnerable moment in the beginning of your pregnancy to start a relationship with someone who's supposed to bring your new baby in the world, what does that tell you about how you're valued, about what is assumed about you uh, and yeah. about the questions that people are going to ask then about all kinds of other behaviors, which will implicitly blame you for the circumstances in which you find yourself. And that is a, a terrible problem. We don't think about these things, but these are scripts that we consistently teach. I, mean, I, I learned these scripts in medical school, medical school just watching the way that different uh, patients were cared for. These are the ways that our policy shapes behavior, the ways that those behaviors uh, on the part of people who are supposed to be there to help can then be uh, a detriment to getting care that folks need uh, that then help to create these uh, deep inequities. And until we're serious about rooting those things out, Right then, then, then we are going to continue to watch as we continue to suffer profound disparities across our society. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Dr. Abdul Al Syed, who is the health director here in Wayne County, about health outcomes for us here in Wayne County. We're going to get uh, a little more specifically into this report about uh, overall health outcomes and how poorly Wayne County stacked up there. We want to hear from you as well on the phones and on social. Give us a call if you live in Wayne County. Uh, talk about the health outcomes for you and your neighbors in whatever city you live in. What do you think can be done at the state level to help improve your health outcomes? And what do you think the county and state are doing to improve residents' health? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm glad you've joined us. We've got Dr. Abdul El Sayed with us. He is the health director in Wayne County, former gubernatorial candidate, and former executive director of the Detroit Health Department. We are talking uh, about health outcomes here in Wayne County, uh, a report that I saw recently that really caught my attention because of the way it describes health outcomes and opportunities here in Wayne County and how they contrast to other counties here, especially in Michigan. Uh, we want to hear from you as well during the conversation. Call and tell us, especially if you live in Wayne County, uh, what your health outcomes are like, what those are of your neighbors, what are they like in your community, and how do they contrast with other parts of the metro area and the state. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Okay, Abdul, I want to talk about this report that uh, that I saw. And again, it is by the University of Wisconsin Population, Population Health Institute. And what really caught my eye was a map that they published. Uh, and it's a map of variations in socioeconomic opportunity among U.S. counties. Uh, uh, counties with really great outcomes were in blue, and uh, counties with poorer outcomes were in uh, red or, or, or orange. Uh, and if you look at the state of Michigan on this map, there were some rural counties that jumped out to me, but the one that, that really stood out, I thought, was Wayne County uh, in terms of the negative outcomes uh, that they associated with it. 
and also the contrast, right? So you've got Wayne County uh, in in orange or red on the map, and the counties around us, uh, Oakland, Washtenaw, Macomb, are in blue. Uh, it, it really just made me stop and think for a second again about the things we were talking about in the previous segment, these institutional uh, uh uh, structures, infrastructures that uh, that uh, really hold people back for a number of reasons, including uh, racism, including uh, poverty, all of these things that that we struggle with. So I, I want to get your reaction to that report. We did share the report with uh, folks in your office, and I know that you've taken a look. Um, you're the health director here. That map has to strike you a little, uh, a little uh, more, I think, uh, severely than it even does me. I'll tell you, that is uh, the, the central focus of um, everything we're doing at the county. I'm, I'm in Wayne County uh, right now doing this work because of a vision that Executive Evans has about where we need to go to, to address exactly that problem. You, you, you wind the clock back eight years. This is a county that was on the verge of bankruptcy uh, with its principal city, Michigan's largest city, uh, walk, working through bankruptcy. And that, those were the circumstances in which I, I'd had my, my role in, in the city of Detroit. The moment now, though, is recognizing the circumstances um, that COVID has demonstrated to us that need to be addressed, the kind of resilience that we need to be invested in. And I, I really appreciate the context within which you're painting this because it really is about economic opportunity and it's about all of the things in an environment that we need to address. And the county executive, Warren Evans, has laid out a, a vision where he says, what are all the pieces that we can tackle? What are all the aspects of the, the lived experience of somebody in Wayne County <clears throat> that we can take on to address the ways that they are kept unhealthy or the opportunities we have to invest in their health? So we're thinking about big picture items like, can we build a system of uh, air monitors to address the air pollution that we know is such a challenge? that robs children of their breath in their early age through asthma? Can we address that transition in early life by building a system of birthing centers uh, in our community that target um, and focus on providing resources for those who are most likely to suffer the loss of an infant or the loss of a life in childbirth? Can we use some of the programs that we have in our county as ways to give folks a one-up? So can we invest in small business by offering free health insurance for small businesses as they get up, which is both an opportunity to invest in socioeconomics, but also to do so through health. And, and, and that vision is, is what I'm working on executing every single day uh, under the direction of, of CEO Evans. I also say this, some of the challenges that we are taking on are a function of compounded history. Mm-hmm. And whether it was the, the, the potential, the, the risk of bankruptcy that the CEO had to take on eight years ago, or it is the, the consequences of systems of structural inequity that we're taking on when it comes to health today, these are all part of a set of decisions that we've made in history. And a lot of our work is about correcting those inequities and taking off that residue uh, of racism that has shaped so many uh, of, the, of the nuances of the lives of people in our county. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that that I want to make sure we we really hit on before we move on to some other points out of this report is this linkage that they're making between things like socioeconomic opportunity and health, right? Uh, people with diminished opportunity to to take care of themselves, to to move up in the world, to to provide for their families, end up 
in in many cases uh, with with diminished health outcomes uh, as well. And it's not coincidence. I mean, one leads to the other. Yeah. I, I want to speak specifically to what is driving life expectancy right now in our country. So we had three years of falling life expectancy between 2015 and 2017. And the causes were, were, were called the, the deaths of despair. They were overdose and, and suicide. Since the COVID-19 pandemic, there has been an accentuation of those challenges because of all the ways that COVID-19 took a life, like it took it directly, but it also accentuated the mental illness that drove opioid overdose and suicide. But there's another piece here too. If you look at post-COVID, countries across the world that have similar socioeconomic profiles to ours have started to recover. Their life expectancy is going back up. Ours has been nosediving. And when you look at why, the consequences go back to those issues and one more, which is opioid overdose and the spiraling uh, issue of, of, of opioids, Su death by suicide. And I just want to mention here um, that if you are someone who's contemplating, make sure you dial 988, that there's a suicide prevention hotline. We need you here. Uh, people love you here and I hope that you'll get the care you need. But there's a third one here too, and that is homicide. That's homicide among kids. Now, mm -hmm. I want you to think about those two together, suicide and homicide. One of the things people don't appreciate is that the highest probability of a death by a gun is inflicted by the person holding the gun. The biggest consequence of gun violence in our country is suicide. That being said, when there is homicide, if you look at the victims, it's not the victims that you hear about on news channels when there are mass shootings in predominantly white communities. It is one-off murders in communities like ours, predominantly black and brown children. And so what connects death by suicide and death by homicide? Guns. And guns make suicidality or suicidal ideation that much more dangerous. And guns are the reason why homicide is so high in our societies. And so it is the, that juxtaposition between uh, mental illness and not just mental illness, but, but social isolation mm -hmm. and stress, like, like the socioeconomic consequences are causing so many people in lower income communities. And then it's the way that those things are made so deadly because of the ubiquity of guns, because of the choices that we make in our public policy. Yeah. I mean, we see it every day in places like Detroit and it doesn't get, the, you're right, it doesn't get the attention that uh, some of the mass shootings, and I'm not saying that it's a competition, um, but it, it doesn't get the kind of focus that the mass shootings that we see in other communities uh, seem uh, seem to get. And, and again, um, you know, when you think about, for instance, what happened this weekend in Detroit, in, in downtown, in Greektown, uh, lots of people shot for no reason, right? I mean, these are fights and arguments that 20, 25 years ago would result in, you know, a, a couple fists being thrown. Now it's just too easy to get a gun and, and kill somebody or really injure somebody. And in our communities, this is the this is the driver of, as you point out, the, the distinction between what happens with our health outcomes and everybody else's. That's right. And I want to be clear about something. Every incidence of gun violence is an atrocity that should not happen. The challenge is that when the victims look a certain way, the narrative says this is uncommon and atrocious. Mm -hmm. But when the victims look a different way, 
it's baked into what we consider as normal. People and so say it's, not covered. It's, it's, it's predictable. Right? Exactly. And, you know, the, the nature of news, right, is new. And you can tell what people think is new versus not new, what they pack as normal versus not normal based on what they cover and we talk about in the news. And so what I'm saying is, yes, we need to continue to cover mass shootings in places like Oxford or uh, at MSU. Those are atrocious. They should never happen. We need to do something about them. But we should also be covering gun violence and the victims of gun violence in communities like Detroit uh, or Highland Park the same way. And we should be profiling those victims and earning their, their sympathy uh, in the same way uh, that we would everyone else. And I think part of the important aspect of talking about that is what connects those two things? It's the yeah. ubiquity of a gun that can take a moment of rage or a moment of frustration or a moment of destitution and turn it into a lost life. And unless we're serious about addressing both that moment of desperation, that moment of anger, or that moment of destitution, and the gun that made it lethal, we're going to continue to see this problem. I, I just want to be clear about something. In the United Kingdom, for example, the probability of dying between the ages of 5 and 25 is about 1%. In the U.S., it's 4%. It's four times as high. Wow. And when you calculate life expectancy, right, you always think about life expectancy as a certain number of years, right? Right, right, right now, it's right about 76 years. The loss of a young life is so, it contributes so much higher to bringing down that life expectancy. Yes. And so, you know, you hear these statistics about uh, places back in the day, right? They'll say the life expectancy in medieval Europe was 38. And people get this assumption that people are just dropping dead at 38. That's not how it happened. The way it happened was that when you average the number of babies who died and the number of children who died relative to the number of adults who died, yes, adults were dying in their 60s uh, way, lower, way earlier than adults died today. But the reason their life expectancy wasn't 60 and it was 38 is because of the number of babies who died. And what has protected us from babies dying has been things like investing in, in, in basic hygiene systems that carry dirty water away from the water we drink, mm -hmm. vaccinations, antibiotics. Those things are great. But what's happening right now is because of the pressure cooker of social isolation, of poverty, all made more lethal by guns. What we're seeing is this newfound increase in death in the moment in which your life is supposed to be safest, yeah. which is in your early adulthood. People in their early adulthood are not supposed to die, but they're dying at way higher clips because we've created an atomized society where life is just getting harder and harder for these kids. And we've made it more lethal because of the access that they have to guns to take those feelings and turn them into a final outcome. Yeah, yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, let's go to Frank in Green Oak Township. Frank, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning. Um, just struck me what the doctor said about the suicide uh, prevention hotline. And, you know, I, it's, I don't know how well that works, but why not a homicide prevention hotline where somebody can call, uh, you know, especially younger people, maybe we could head some of that off at a, you know, uh, you know, a lot of these school shooters have had, you know, uh, uh, many months uh, of, of a, this feeling of rage that they want to kill somebody. So mm -hmm. maybe there, if there was some place that they could call to talk about it anonymously. Yeah, I don't know, I Frank. Don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that would work. Uh, I think it's an interesting idea. Um, but but Abdul, talk about talk about a little more about how well the suicide prevention uh, hotline works. But uh, whether I guess something like that could could help us with homicides. Well, the suicide prevention hotline is 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 an extremely important resource. And um, again, that number is nine eight eight, and it's one of those numbers that you just have to have on the tip of your tongue, just like we we know about nine one one, which I argue is probably the closest thing we have to the homicide 
uh, prevention hotline. Sure. The key thing, though, and Frank, I think the 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 big point that you're making here is that we have a profound level of unmet need to address the social isolation that so many of the people who end up involved in gun violence experience. I mean, you think about uh, gang activity, right? What is gang activity except for the need to find community sometimes in, in the least healthy and um, in most detrimental kinds of ways? And so we have an epidemic right now of social isolation that is creating circumstances in which uh, people are going without the the, the support and uh, the um, investment uh, in terms of time and energy that they need and deserve. And unfortunately, that turns deadly because of access to guns. But I do want to say something clear here, is that there is social isolation, and social isolation is going up in many other countries. There is destitution and frustration in many other countries. The one difference in ours is that there is there are more guns than there are people which allow that destitution and frustration to be turned into violence in a far uh, more deadly um, and, and higher volume way. Yeah. Yeah. Again, uh, Frank, really appreciate the call and uh, the comments. Um, Abdul, we're going to run out of time, but I do want to get you to talk about the coming return of water shutoffs that is scheduled here in in Detroit. For me, when you talk about health outcomes and uh, putting them in danger, I can't think of a lever that you would pull that would have a more direct uh, relationship to that, and yet we we continue to have this conversation here in in Southeast Michigan about whether we're going to stop people from having fresh water. Big frustration to me on this issue is that we are the state with more fresh water than any other state in the country. I mean, between Arizona and California and Colorado, they're trying to decide how to divvy up a a, a singular smaller river that's running out of water. Mm-hmm. It's become a rivulet. We've got five Great Lakes right here that we could pull from, and we do. And the challenge that I see is that we allow major corporations like Nestle to bottle our water for a simple fee and not have to pay like ratepayers in places like Highland Park or Detroit. And we have not guaranteed the same access to water for folks in our state. And as we look at where we are as a state, right, we've been blessed in in this moment to have Uh, so much money that the state is trying to figure out what to do with it. I would say that a really, really smart investment would be to guarantee people in our state that basic thing that makes up 70% of our body. And this, unfortunately, has been left to some combination of uh, municipal policy and uh, and individual households to pay, rather than the state taking it on and deciding that we're going to take this on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 every time, every time I see the stories about it, I think there has got to be a way to get past this. I mean, other communities don't do it this way. Uh, and, and I, I worry about all kinds of things that would be possible if you had mass water shutoffs again here in, uh, here in Detroit. Okay. Abdul El-Sayed, it is always great to catch up with you. Congratulations on the new baby. Thank That's you. very exciting. And uh, congratulations on your work so far in this new job as the health director in Wayne County. Thanks uh, for coming by today. Stephen, always a privilege. Thank you. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we are going to talk with Pulitzer Prize winning poet and Detroit native, Tyamba Jess. Also, if you like this show and get a lot out of it, share it. Share it with your friends and your neighbors and your family. 
We want this to be a community where everybody feels like they are a part of it. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.